0: The American POTUS podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the supreme allied commander who would become commander-in-chief, Dwight Eisenhower. If titles were a true description of the man, you'd think his ego would shine as bright as the stars on his old uniform. But this quiet statesman seemed to find the perfect balance between gentle and tough. Cautioning the world's communist leaders, he would fight them every step of the way, with not just weapons, but calm, civil, negotiated peace the most famous of wartime generals who believed it was his number one job to keep us out of war. Dwight Eisenhower, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our guest for this episode on our 34th POTUS is best-selling author Evan Thomas. He's no stranger to D.C. politics. For 33 years, he was a writer, correspondent, and editor for Time and Newsweek, including 10 years as Washington Bureau Chief. Since then, he's taught writing and journalism at Harvard and Princeton and appeared on many different radio and TV talk shows. And now he can add American POTUS to that list. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us, Evan. We appreciate you taking the time.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Evan, this is Alan Lowe. Great great to talk with you. I know a few years ago we were on a panel together at the wonderful Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. I don't remember how many years ago, but really enjoyed meeting you then, and I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you. Now, today we're going to talk about one of your many books, and I've loved all of them, but today we're going to talk about Ike's Bluff, President Eisenhower's Secret Battle to Save the World. I thought we might start by talking about your central point in Ike's bluff and then drilling down a bit to see why he was able to pull off that bluff so successfully. Can you summarize for our listeners just what that bluff was?
1: Sure. In uh, 1953, when Eisenhower became president, it looked like the map was turning red. You know, We were at war in Korea, fighting uh, Chinese as well as North Koreans. The Soviet Union had taken over Eastern Europe. There were rumbles coming out of the uh, Middle East, South America it just looked like communism was on the march Eisenhower is the president his job is to do something about this but what? Now, Eisenhower's last big job was conquering Europe and he knew enough about war not to want to get into a war mm-hmm. he just did not want to fight a land war anywhere and that didn't leave him a whole lot of choices but he has this new weapon, the nuclear weapon and he uses it as a basically is a bluff. Whenever he, can, he makes it clear that we are willing to use these things. Now, importantly, he never told anybody whether he really was willing to use them. That's a crucial dimension to this, not even his closest aides. But he basically bluffed with nuclear weapons against the Soviet Union, principally, but also the Chinese, to, to, to hang back and, and mm-hmm. to, to not advance further or face the nuclear wrath of the United
2: States. That took great nerve on his part, great intelligence, and... He once said that his highest principles were purpose, calmness, and inexhaustible patience. So let's look at each of those in turn. I find it so interesting that this smiling, grandfatherly man could be such a cold, calculating strategist. Where did that deep sense of purpose, determination, and strength come from with Ike?
1: I grew up in, in, in Kansas, poor boy, and uh, his <laughs> mother was a, was a scriptural believer, Uh, and there's a famous incident that he liked to recount of. He had a big temper. Even as a little kid, he had a big temper. And he was once, he couldn't go trick-or-treating, something like that, some minor thing. He was so angry that he beat a tree with his fists until they were bloody. (laughs) And his mother said to him, quoting scripture, he who conquereth his own soul is greater than he who conquereth a city. Mm. Self-restraint is everything. Uh, Whatever you do in life, Learn how to control your emotions to control your temper. Now, obviously, it's not like a switch you can turn on and off, Mm -hmm. but he devoted himself throughout his life to self-restraint, to self-control, not because he was a laid-back guy. He was not. He had a big temper. He had a big ego, but he controlled those things to great
2: effect. You said uh, I I love one of the lines in your book, Ike's bluff, that uh, his staff thought they sat sometimes at the foot of Vesuvius. (laughs) That was a great line. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, he didn't do it. Or one another one said it was like looking inside a Bessemer steel furnace.
3: (laughs) Uh,
1: I mean, it was he he didn't conceal his temper from his closest aides or his Mm. long-suffering secretary and Whitman, or even his wife, actually. Uh, But the public had no idea. And his subordinates very rarely saw it. They might see it kind of lurking in the shadows. Mm-hmm. They might feel his force without actually hearing his raised voice. But, you know, when he wanted to really get mad at somebody, he would lower his voice. Oh. Uh, he, he, he knew how to punish people without, without, without ever yelling at them because they could feel his force and they could feel it when they had lost his respect.
2: It sounds like my parents, frankly. You lower your voice and say the full wow. name, and you know you know, you know you're lot, in trouble yeah. at that point. Yeah. Now, well, <laughs> it actually
1: was a generational. You know, this is a generational thing a little bit. Uh, you know, we don't. This is not our culture today mm-hmm. at all, where people are always yelling at each other all the time. Uh, the, the culture then was self restraint was a good thing. You know, it was mm-hmm. came out of religion partly, or the religion as it was understood at that time, and self restraint, self control being being in control of your 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 emotions. That was now it's considered to be repressed, hostile, problematic. Then it was considered to be a virtue.
2: Though he had that virtue of self control, did he ever use that temper for a purpose?
1: Boy, I have to think real hard about mm-hmm. a time when he actually blew up at anybody for an actual yeah. purpose. Nothing nothing is coming to my mind. Yeah. People certainly felt this I remember there's a scene where an <laughs> admiral had been a little bit too uh forthcoming with a press threatening nuclear weapons which is you know that was eisenhower's job not an admiral's job right. <laughs> went in went, went in thinking that he was about to get fired and he came out actually elated for a moment because Ike didn't yell at him and then of <laughs> course it sucked into him that he was finished.
2: Yeah. Right. Uh,
1: He was the army, Navy, Navy chief of staff. He was, he was gone.
2: I must say also, you're reminding me of another great president who had that temper controlled. It was Washington. He was known for a a furious temper, but he, he held it under control. Usually. Great point. Right. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, In fact, uh, I was just reading about Washington. This uh, book by Tom Ricks,
2: Hmm.
1: uh, called first principles. And I was just reading where Washington got it was from the Romans. Hmm. Uh, from a, a play called uh, Cato by a playwright named Addison. They all read it. Yeah. And yeah. this ideal of vir- the virtue, virtue meant putting service over self. Mm-hmm. And so in order to put service over self, you have to have self-control. You can't be constantly talking about your ego. It's the opposite of, say, Donald Trump. You can't be talking about yourself all the time. You have to be talking about the country and duty. Mm-hmm. Duty was a huge thing. Yeah. And at, at West Point, they studied you know washington and washington in turn had studied roman leaders uh and that was that was the virtue that they prized was the self-control sublimating self and ego for a greater cause
2: now sometimes though when ike did allow his temper to be expressed it was taken out on those around him including mamie so can we talk a bit about that relationship of ike and mamie and how that partnership worked
1: well, super complicated, you know, like a lot of marriages, you know, very complicated. And I only you don't really know. I'm not in their bedroom. I don't really know. But, they, it, you know, he, he was a general. He was a guy who disappeared for long periods of time. And famously, during World War Two, he had a highly publicized, alleged affair mm-hmm. with Kay Summersby, his driver. And the rumors of this, whether or not it was true, the rumors got back to Mamie. Mm -hmm. And there's gossip about it. And it got in the press. And can you imagine, can you imagine how humiliating that was for her? Then he comes back and he's kind of, a. she said, he changed. He'd become more religious, not go to church religious, but more deeply spiritual and kind of more removed. I, I think he was always a little removed, but even more removed. And he, she, she went to his office four times in eight years. She did not talk shop with him she did mm. not talk business but and this is an important but I think they did have a loving relationship He always signed his letters to her lover your lover mm-hmm. uh, Susan Eisenhower, the granddaughter thought they had a really a physical relationship mm. and I think I'm pretty sure you may have to fact check me on this but that Ike shared a double bed and shared a bedroom with. Mamie at the White House, and that was unusual. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe I'm right about this. I need to be checked, but I believe so. They were sleeping together, mm-hmm. and there's I, I had the good luck to have um, Ike's doctor, Doctor Snyder, who was uh, kept a diary and was really closely observing Ike and Mamie, and they would bicker, and he would be difficult and walk out on her. But there's a scene that always stuck with me. They'd had a fight. But at four o'clock in the morning, uh, Mamie goes out to sleep in her dressing room. Ike goes and finds her and crawls into bed with her. <sighs> that was telling to me. Yeah, uh, you know, don't don't go to bed mad. I mean, you know, they they would they would bicker yes, but they would reconcile. I think there was a real, there really was a closeness there. Uh, complicated, you know, not sure. maybe not a modern marriage, but a real one.
0: If you'd like to know more about our guest Evan Thomas and some of his terrific history books including Ike's Bluff simply visit AmericanPOTUS.com We have a resource section there with links to all of the best-selling books he's written and while you're there, send us a note let us know about any other authors or books that you think would make for a good future episode Thanks for listening
2: You talk about Ike's patience and his ability to use, I believe the word was studied, ambiguity to defer, deflect, misdirect. Where did that ability come from with Ike? Was it something natural for him? Did he learn it throughout his career prior to the presidency?
1: He learned it by having been forced to accept disappointment and delay. Mm-hmm. Uh, at West Point, he's a football star, and he hurts his knee uh, in a riding accident. And he can't play. And he becomes a kind of a bitter poker player, actually smoking cigarettes. And I was interested in me <laughs> on the day he graduated from West Point, he goes into New York on the day he graduates, and and either he paid off a thousand dollar debt? I guess it was somebody staked staked him money. Now thousand dollars in the early twentieth century is yeah, like
3: it's
0: a big deal.
1: Twenty thousand today? I mean, it's a, for a college senior. It's a lot of dough. And the fact that on graduation day is going to pay off some mysterious banker loaned it to him so he was a not the happiest cadet he was kind of lower middle class lower middle of his class uh, so he, he had faced disappointment as a, a, a he wants to go into combat in World War One. He's, he's, he's coaching football teams and training people he never gets to Europe he never gets in combat for a soldier that's everything and yet he misses it uh, during the interwar years you know promotions are very slow you're a lieutenant forever and he, you know, he does rise through the ranks, but he has to, there's a lot of deferred mm-hmm. uh, expectation, and he just learns to bite his tongue, and and keep his counsel, and, and you know, accept de- de- deferred gratification, uh, and and it gave him a sense of patience, and playing the long game. Again, when he's now he, now he's supreme Knight commander, you know, huge power, but he's always dealing with very difficult people. We're always acting out, whether it was to Montgomery or mm. you know, Churchill. or mm. you know, And he's always having to be the one who's low-key. Mm. That was a learned art, yeah. uh, but he did learn it.
2: And as you said, he, he loved playing poker, obviously not Nickel Annie, something a bit higher than that, and and uh, golf and bridge. How did those games help him not only relax but sharpen his skills?
1: Well, he was always looking around the corner, I mean, in bridge – He's counting cards. It's a difficult game. I've never played it, but I did talk to bridge experts for the story to try to get some feel. It's a hard game. Mm-hmm. And you have to do this dance with your partner. You're not allowed to talk to each other, but you signal each other through the mm-hmm. bidding process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's this subtle, subtle signaling that goes back and forth. Uh, uh, he was a hard guy to play bridge with, actually, because <laughs> uh, he, he let you know if you had made a stupid. It was his son, <laughs> his son, John, who was a great source for me. I uh, recounted a conversation where John said, excuse me, Ike said to John, why'd you do that? And I, you know, John said, because I felt like I, I don't know. John never played bridge with him again.
2: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right.
3: yeah.
1: uh, after a while, only General Grunther, the supreme European commander, would play with him. But he, you know, he was, he, he was he, actually this is interesting. As a junior officer, he's playing a lot of poker. He was winning so much money. He had to stop. It was bad for his career. <laughs> uh, because he was he was
2: thinking he enemies. was taking, the,
1: taking the life savings of too many <laughs> lieutenants.
2: Wow, that, that's impressive. So, so you mentioned a few folks there who were important to him. One, you mentioned you talk about quite a bit in the book is Fox Connor uh, during Ike's yeah. service in Panama. Can you talk a bit about Connor, a figure not that well known, but, but who was yeah, enormously obscure. influential? Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, he had, he had a good career. He was uh, basically operations chief for Pershing in World War One. You know, so he had a big, big war career. But he was also known as the general who made Ike, because he became Ike's mentor in, in Panama in the Panama Canal Zone in the 1920s. And he was he got him reading. He got him reading, you know, the classics, and he got him reading about war. And uh, he taught him a couple of very valuable things. One was, you know, Clausewitz, everybody thinks of Clausewitz on war, and they always think of this line that war is just politics by another means. That misreads Clausewitz, according to Fox Connor. The real meaning of Klaus of 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 war is that wars get out of control. That once you start fighting, people will fight to the death, especially if their own land has been invaded. Mm-hmm. And wars are extremely hard to control. It's kind of the opposite of war just being an extension of politics. But that was a lesson that, that Fox Connor taught Ike and it was a really important lesson, which uh, you know, when it came time to get in the Vietnam War or not in nineteen fifty four, Ike did not. Mm-hmm. He's channeling Fox Connor for that. The other thing he got importantly from Fox Connor was this idea that you gotta plan all the time. But the first contact with the enemy, plans go out the window. And so he taught him to plan. Play I the, the, the phrase is, uh, "Plans are nothing; planning is everything." Hmm. You know, you got to plan the hell out of things, but then don't, don't expect those plans to right. come true. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, that that's really valuable real world lesson. And 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 Fox Connor first taught it to Ike. Yeah.
2: Now another person who played a huge role in Ike's life was Douglas MacArthur. How would you describe their relationship? And what did terrible, I take from terrible. it? Yes, I would say. Terrible. And what did Ike learn from that relationship? What, what,
1: very simple. What not to do.
2: <laughs> don't
1: don't be a show off. Don't take attention from yourself. Don't be vainglorious. You know, don't be a big hothead ego. You know, I, I just suffered. Ike was McCarthy's chief of staff. So he's dealing with him. And, and, and <laughs> McCarthy was kind of contemptuous called Ike. He said, well, Eisenhower is a good clerk. <laughs> you can imagine Oof. how well that sat with yes. with ike and so they but so uh you know Eisenhower had to do a lot of like of uh, macarthur's dirty work including mm-hmm. you know putting down the bonus marchers and all that and he and, and i just and then and went to the philippines with him and and i just developed a thorough dislike of macarthur and a determination not to be a showboat and tin pot general who defied the politicians i mean you know Eisenhower believed in civilian rule, Mm -hmm. Uh, MacArthur not so much.
2: In his administration, the Dulles brothers, John Foster and Allen figured very prominently, often to the consternation of many others, how did they help make Ike's Bluff successful?
1: Two different ways, and it wasn't always successful in this sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, let me get to that. First of all, John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State. Foster Dulles was a moralist. And kind of a preacher, mm-hmm. and Ike used him to be the heavy, to be the bad cop. Ike uh, uh, was the man behind the scenes for Foster. Foster Dulles gave a famous speech about massive retaliation, basically threatening that we'd nuke you if you, you know, even looked wrong at us. And uh, this idea of massive retaliation, the new look, uh, we're going to reduce ground troops but have a superior nuclear force. And it was known at the time as brinksmanship. But but this was Eisenhower's policy. But he let Dulles carry the burden. He let Dulles play the heavy. It was very significant that when Eisenhower's papers were op- opened up 10, 15 years after all this, no, 20 years, it turned out that Ike had written the key, the most bombastic phrases in mm-hmm. Dulles' massive retaliation speech were written by Ike. Mm-hmm. But Ike wanted... Mu- wanted Dulles to be out there. Well that way I could play the genial, affable guy, you know. Uh, I, I went through a biography of Edward Bennett Williams, who was a famous trial lawyer. And it was the same thing. Williams would send in his young lawyers to raise hell. And they would tear down the drapes and kick over the desk, terrify the other side. And then Williams would come in and say, hey, let's talk about the Redskins.
3: You know, <laughs> <laughs>
1: And, and that was sort of Eisenhower stuff. Yeah. Uh, right. And Eisenhower didn't he, he, because his ego was so controlled, he didn't need to be there. He was the president of the United States. He was the supreme Allied commander. He didn't need to be out there showing off. Yeah. And he and this is amazing to me. He was willing to be kind of stupid and inarticulate. Stupid's too strong a word. He was willing to be inarticulate, mm-hmm. to be confusing. There's a famous scene where uh, Eisenhower going to a press conference. And his aides are saying, you're going to be asked about, you know, we're we going to use nuclear weapons against China. You're going to be asked about this. What are you going to say? And Eisenhower says, oh, well, I'll just confuse them. <laughs> and he did. He did it. His answers were completely impenetrable. Now, most people, when they go out there, are not willing to do that. You know, they want to sound. Uh, when I'm talking to you, I'm trying to be as clear as I possibly can. I don't yes. want to sound Confusing and inarticulate and wander around. I may do that inadvertently, but I sure don't wish to. <laughs> right. Eisenhower did it intentionally because it do, had a it deflected attention. It allowed him to avoid credit, but also to avoid blame. Mm-hmm. You know, he could put it off on other people. So that's that's a, uh, that's John Foster Dulles. Allen is a more complicated the other the other Dulles brother. Allen is the head of the CIA, and. If Ike had a real weak spot in his foreign policy, it's right here. Eisenhower, if you, you follow the logic of this, well, Eisenhower doesn't want to fight a conventional war. He doesn't want to use nuclear weapons. Well, what's left? Covert operations. And and the CIA did a lot of that in the 1950s. Most famously, they overthrew uh, Mossadegh and, and Iran. They overthrew the government of, of Iran and installed the Shah in 1953. And then in 1954, they staged a coup in Guatemala, and uh, and these were kind of low cost victories against communism. They were pyrrhic victories because they didn't they left a bad taste in the world's mouth. The CIA is going around overthrowing governments. Well, they didn't even work locally. And Guatemala, descended into years of mm-hmm. violence. Iran, you know, the Shah had a run, but but when he fell in the late seventies, you know, the Molos came in. So. Mm-hmm. In Iran, it the long term consequences were bad in Iran. But the, the idea then was, hey, we could do things on the cheap and on the quiet. We can roll back communism, with do it through covert a- operations, covert action. And Dulles was put in charge of all that. And Dulles was a charismatic leader in some ways, and they had some early successes. But mostly it was a screw up. Mm-hmm. Mostly what the CIA did in covert action in the 1950s did not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, the, there were some spectacular failed attempts in Indonesia, uh, in Syria, um, they, they screwed up in the Middle East regularly because, because covert operations are hard to do. They're really hard to do. They, they're, they're kind of appealing to presidents who want to do things cheaply and secretly, but they're extremely hard to pull off. Mm-hmm. The CIA was good at, at collecting electronic intelligence through the U2I spy plane and the Corona satellite. They're really, that was an imp- very, very important we can talk about that later but on 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 the on the spy versus spy stuff not so good and 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 here's the point uh ike 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 gave too much rope to to uh, to Dulles. he should have reined him and he was warned that uh cia was kind of out of control and he was and and yet he uh he, he 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 just gave him too much rope
0: We'll get into Ike's surprising relationship with the Soviet leadership in just a moment. But first, we want to remind you to visit AmericanPOTUS.com. You can easily find links to all of the books written by our guest, Evan Thomas, as well as our other expert contributors. And be sure to like or follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Thanks for listening to American POTUS.
2: Americans reacted somewhat hysterically, when the Soviets launched Sputnik. But interestingly, Ike didn't seem that concerned. His poll numbers dropped significantly, as you recount yeah. in Ike's bluff. He always had understood the vital role of science, so why did he not feel more threatened by the advances the Soviets were making in space?
1: Well, it seems scary as heck when the Soviets were able to put a satellite, you know, a giant rocket. This is a, this is a new thing. This is before their international uh, ICBMs. Intercontinental ballistic missiles. So, the fact that the Russians could put the satellite up to sail over our heads signaled that they could also put nuclear missiles on us. Mm-hmm. And that was terrifying. However, because as you say, Ike knew the science, he knew that the Russians had these big fat missiles, but they were not accurate. Uh, they didn't have the capacity to, to take out New York. They couldn't hit New York. They couldn't find New York. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he knew that the United States was busy at work on missiles that were going to be much more accurate. And much more threatening, and because we had this brand new U two spy plane that could fly over the Soviet Union, we could look down and see that they yes, they had a big fat rocket to get uh, satellites, but that was it. Mm-hmm. I think by 1960 they had maybe four ICBMs. By then we had 150. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a whole lot of talk about the missile gap and the bomber gap. Totally fictitious. Yeah, they were well, no, not, there were gaps. But the gap favored us overwhelmingly. Bomber gap overwhelmingly favored the United States with the B-52. Missile gap overwhelmingly favored the United States. But the country got panicked about it because Sputnik seemed so scary. And this is where it gets a little complicated. Eisenhower did not do a great job of reassuring his fellow Americans that we really were not in danger here. He he gave a couple of these chin up speeches they were called to try to get people to calm down, but they were not good speeches, and they really didn't resonate. And the fear mongers, LBJ and Congress and the media, you know, Life Magazine, they were making everybody scared as heck. And and I did not do a good job of calming. And I'm talking about personally. I was at the time a you know seven year old boy. I'm scared to death of nuclear war. I did not do a good job of reassuring me that <laughs> I wasn't going to go up in a mushroom cloud. Right.
2: Well, s- some of that, though, he was limited, right, in terms of being able to say what he knew because of the way that yes. intelligence had been gathered.
1: That's an important – yes, a critical point. He would say the critical point. He could not divulge that we were had this spy plane flying over the Soviet Union. Now – The Russians knew we had a spy plane flying over the Soviet Union, but he felt that we couldn't, it was still secret and we couldn't kind of shame them by pointing out that that we were doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there may have been a way to do that, but but in any case, he felt he couldn't. And it was just his nature to be secretive and to tell people to calm down and, and not worry so much and not... Get that bent out of shape about the politics. I mean, he didn't. He didn't love it that his poll ratings went down, but they went down from seventy to fifty percent. Fifty percent today is considered to be well, pretty good.
2: Yeah, that's seventy awesome. was.
1: Yeah, yeah right. Seventy <laughs> percent was just you know stratosphere. I think his average poll rating was sixty five percent. Wow, over eight years. That's it's impressive. Now,
2: yeah. Right? yeah, Speaking of the Soviets, in nineteen fifty nine, Premier Khrushchev came to the U S. made a famous trip around the country. And you make a really interesting statement in Ike's Bluff. You say that despite the USSR being our adversary in the Cold War, Khrushchev really was, in a way, Ike's partner. Could you tell us what you mean by that?
1: Well, Khrushchev was a blowhard. People remember him taking his shoe off and pounding Mm -hmm. the table at the rostrum Mm -hmm. at the UN and He had all these incendiary remarks about, you know, we're cranking out sausages like rockets and, you know, we will bury you. That was a famous quote. Uh, (laughs) Scary as all heck. But Eisenhower, because he had great insight into people and to his opponents, understood that, as he put it, the Russian leaders were not early Christian martyrs. Hmm. They were survivors. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to die in some fiery blast. They knew perfectly well that we would turn the Soviet Union into a smoking ruin in about a half an hour if we ever went to war with them. And they didn't they did not want to die. They, t- they talk tough, but they but they could work with us. And he wanted to make a partner of Khrushchev in, in, in calming down Cold War tensions. It was hard because Khrushchev was so volatile. But uh, Eisenhower, you know, brought him to the United States, as you said, in 1959, uh, gave him a kind of a tour of the, going to, to they went to, to a movie set, I think it was, to look at the movie set of Can-Can, I think
3: it was. <laughs> right, right.
1: Uh, he wanted to go to Disneyland, but he couldn't go because of the security issues. He had to meet Marilyn Monroe, you know, he had a good time, and then he took him to Camp David, and he just wanted to work with him. He was hoping to get some kind of arms control, a test ban treaty started. It never happened because that U-2 plane that I was talking about, one of them got shot down in May of 1960, and so a summit meeting turned into kind of a non-meeting because mm-hmm. it, it just blew up on him. But Eisenhower's goal was to use Khrushchev to get him to agree with him that, to take steps towards arms control.
2: Now, we focused on the Soviets, but we have to remember when Ike entered office, U.S. forces were battling Chinese forces in Korea we faced several crises with communist China during Ike's time in the White House. Did his approach to China differ from how he approached the Soviets?
1: Not really. He, we knew, if possible, even less about the Chinese than we did about the Russians. I mean, you know, our ignorance about our enemies is interesting. We didn't have anybody in Moscow. You know, everybody who sees James Bond movies thinks we got spies crawling all over the place. Our first uh, CIA station chief in Moscow in the early 50s. Was sent packing because he got caught in what they call a honey trap uh-huh. uh, by with the KGB. Mm-hmm. Got set up with a prostitute, mm-hmm. and they threw him out. We didn't have anybody in Moscow. Over the fifties, we developed a couple of spies of basically Soviet traders who helped us, but we had very little real human intelligence coming out of Russia, so we didn't really know much about them. We had nothing coming out of China, and Mao was kind of a scary figure. He. Mm-hmm at one point talked about well let's have a world war and half the people will die but we'll just kind of start over Russia Chinas a big country I we can lose a few <laughs> oh, you know tens of millions or you know hundred million people uh, and start over and they'll all be communists and so Mao talked this kind of crazy game but he did not have nuclear weapons uh, now Khrushchev was thinking of giving him a nuclear weapon, but kind of held off when he saw how crazy Mao was talking <laughs> right. Eisenhower bluffed with with now he 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 did it he did it a couple of times in the Korean War, which is a North Koreans are fighting with the Chinese against us, backed by by the Soviet Union. I uh, there's some controversy amongst academics about this. Uh, But uh, Eisenhower signaled subtly that we might use nuclear weapons against them. Now, the academics wonder whether the signal ever went through. It may be more that they just saw Eisenhower coming in as president in 1953. You know, the war has been going on for two and a half years. They see Eisenhower arrive and they don't really want to fight the guy who conquered uh, Europe. And Eisenhower does pick up the pace on bombing and blowing up some dikes and they're exhausted. So that, 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 that war ends with an armistice. But, but that's not the end of it, because China is threatening uh, Formosa, as it was called then, Taiwan now, where the nationalists, there had been a civil war in China and, and uh, the communists won. And the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek flee to Taiwan, to Formosa. And there was a lot of um, drum beating. Uh, by Mao and the Chinese, that first they were going to take over these two little islands, kimoy and Matsu, mm-hmm. off the Chinese coast, and use those as springboards to invade uh, for most of Taiwan. And Ike uh, bluffed. Uh, basically, he made it. He, he threatened that if the Chinese, the Red Chinese, uh, Mao took over kimoy and Matsu, he would use nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, whether how serious he was, I don't know. No, no. Nope, in fact, nobody knew. But he—that was—it was—he bluffed and, yeah. and Mal back down.
2: In the middle of all those crises and the incredible stress he had to feel during the presidency, you reminded me of how many illnesses Ike fought. He had stomach illnesses, heart attacks, a stroke—all during his time in the White House. Yeah. How in the world did this man, with so many physical challenges, confront all the challenges as of serving as president?
1: Uh, sheer willpower, <laughs> uh,
2: scotch, scotch whiskey, <laughs> second all, uh, you know,
1: all I mean, the things that help she, us through American POTUS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah <right. laughs> you know, it's
2: amazing
1: doing the pharma, You know, laughing I've gotten you know, into the pharmacology of the era because I wrote about Nixon as well. They took bad stuff in the fifties: barbiturates, amphetamine, stuff that yeah. you would never have. You know, this is yeah. the climax of this. Is Doctor Feelgood. In the Kennedy administration, where he's yeah. making these cocktails of yeah. amphetamines and barbiturates, yeah. oh, and, and and messing with uh, Kennedy's head, actually at this summer meeting with Khrushchev. But it, but but the doctors were fast and loose with the uppers and downers in the nineteen fifties, and so Ike was given second all, and and it was bad for him. Uh, he would it would make him hungover, and you know it was not a good drug, and he got he got addicted to it. He was taking two a night at one point. Mm. Uh, and taking him too late, and it was messing with him, and his doctor was worried about it uh he wasn't a big boozer, but he did have a couple of scotches uh and he he liked the scotch particularly towards the end of his uh, presidency he says a couple of times to Snyder, let's get drunk. <laughs> Kind of like fraternity brothers. Let's get drunk. You know?
2: <laughs> party. Uh, party.
1: Right. Uh, uh, but mostly, mostly just incredible will, because uh, I remember reading about Eisenhower in World War II and Him telling Kay Summersby there's not a part of his body that doesn't hurt. His head hurts. His stomach hurts. He's got bronchitis. Because, you know, we talk, we think about decisions. This is a guy who's deciding whether thousands of Americans are going to die. Mhm. Mm-hmm. His his decisions are not gee, should I get up in the morning and go to work or not or mm-hmm. should I get into a fight with somebody at work his decision am I going to send thousands of men to their mm-hmm. deaths. Right. And uh before D day uh a lot of people a lot of your, your listeners know the story but I'll repeat it because it's so good. The head of the airborne was a British officer named laid mallory i think his name is comes to Eisenhower five days before D-Day and says, we can't do the airborne attack. Now, the airborne attack was crucial because they were afraid that if they didn't secure the beachheads with airborne troops first, the the Germans could come rushing up and and reinforce the the beachheads and drive us into the sea. So we really had a need to put airborne soldiers in behind the lines, so to speak. So uh, Lee Mallory comes to Eisenhower and says, we can't do this because 70 to 80 percent are going to die. Uh, it's we just can't do it. And Eisenhower believed in delegation, and this is his airborne commander, but he overrules him. Mm-hmm. And and the famous photograph that you're, you're, uh, many of your listeners probably most yes. have seen of Eisenhower standing there talking to the paratroopers yeah. mm-hmm. on the day, this that night they're they're back, they're getting into their planes. Their faces are blackened with you know grease, and he's talking about fishing and all that. He came to look them in their eyes. Because he'd been told that 70 or 80% of them were not coming back. Yeah. And he wanted to look them to, in the eye. Now, can you imagine what that does to a man's stomach?
3: Sure, sure. Uh,
1: and, and Eisenhower, you know, was just a physical wreck. He always had a bad stomach, and it was always short on And his heart went, too. So he had, he had a pretty massive heart attack mm-hmm. in 1955, misdiagnosed by Dr. Snyder versus indigestion. But you know, put him out for. He was in a hospital bed for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Then he had ileitis. I'm not sure how to pronounce this word. elitis, a mm-hmm. uh, blockage of the of the intestine, uh, which was a little hairy. Uh, and then he had a minor stroke. That's that's a lot of illness for yeah. a sitting president of the United States. Oh, my gosh. And uh, he had blood pressure problems. His stomach was always shorting out. Uh, he, you know, he was a hurting. Hurting guy by the end there, because he'd been under so so much stress for so long, and because he swallowed it. It's yeah. not like he was you know doing uh, Gestalt therapy or something. Primal scream therapy or something. I wasn't doing primal right. screams out there. He was playing his therapy was golf was, was angry right. golf. He was, he was oh, not for, much fun to play. With. <laughs> Uh, you know, he was he was not a whole lot of fun to play yeah. with. And he once famously, I love this story from Dr. Snyder's diary. He once through his golf club at his doctor. <laughs> he had made a bad uh, shot out of a trap yeah. and Dr. Snyder trying to make him feel better. So I fine shot. And, you know, I never said the hell it was and threw his golf club and the yeah. club wrapped around. and now he almost broke his kneecap. Wow. Well, You know, not the best. I that quote of golf pro in there saying, I just couldn't believe this guy. He was a bad sport.
2: <laughs> well, golf is infuriating I, at times, I must say, but I, I would right. It's supposed I, to I, be relaxing. I, That's right.
1: I, <laughs> have thrown, my, my, I, have, I have thrown my golf clubs. I'm yes. here to confess. I have, I'm ashamed <laughs> of that, but I have done
2: so you're reminding me, the wonderful Eisenhower Library Museum in Abilene, Kansas, has that "In Case of Failure" note that Ike wrote and kept in his pocket on D-Day. Just yes. take taking the blame for D-Day if it had not yes. been successful.
1: Yeah, it was in his chest pocket. Uh, you know, the, it was a preemptory. The landings, you know, it was. It was, it was it been, the landings have failed, the responsibility is mine alone. you mm-hmm. think today when politicians never take responsibility for anything. <laughs> he was preparing himself to take responsibility for the greatest military failure in history it wasn't it was you know a huge success God, but yeah. the point is he was ready to to take the blame and he had this this uh, you know I hope they still teach us at West Point but this this thing that you know the commanding officer is responsible mm-hmm. and you take responsibility
2: now you show the concern that I had with the growth of the Iron Triangle, the relationship of military, industry, and Congress. He spoke of the great equation, how a republic balances freedom with security. And, of course, we all know about his uh, famous farewell speech where he warned of the dangers of the military-industrial complex. How did a man raised in the military come to hold such beliefs?
1: Well, it's a crucial part of his presidency. He was able to control the military because he knew the military. He would say, I know those boys. He would say, I know those boys. And he knew that the lobbyists, you know, the generals were up there lobbying and that they were all the retired generals working for the defense contractors were getting sweet deals. And that if you don't keep your eye on it, it's just going to mushroom. And a little known fact, Eisenhower in his eight years cut defense spending. Hmm. Now, the way he did it was by cutting the army. He didn't intend to use the army. And so he cut the army by a third. And this is from high levels, from Korea War levels. So it's a little misleading. But but he cut the army by a third. This is his own service. He's cutting by a third. He did not endear himself to his old pals from World War II, who are the commanding generals, like you know Maxwell Taylor, uh, Airborne commander. He you know he I, it's tough. I'm we're not. We're, I'm not fighting big conventional wars. So we're we're not going to pay for it. He increased spending on on missiles and and airplanes because that's where we had to modernize. We had to create a modern nuclear force, and that was expensive. He was willing to spend the money. But, and this is a crucial but, he was smart about spending the money. So, for instance, when Congress wanted to buy a lot of Atlas missiles in the late 50s, Eisenhower said, no, these were relicials. Uh, liquid-fuel missiles that would take forever to get off a launch pad. He wanted to wait for the next generation, for the Minuteman, for solid-fuel missiles. Mm-hmm. And Congress you know, wanted to waste billions of dollars really because the contractors had gotten to them, particularly to Senator Symington, uh, whose, uh, whose former aide was the chief lobbyist for Atlas, which made the missiles.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And Eisenhower, you wasn't know, he, he, just the military industrial, it was the press as well, Uh, Joe Alsop, the columnist for the New York Herald Tribune, was always writing about the missile gap. And he was being used by the by the Air Force, leaking him inaccurate estimates of Soviet strength in order to justify more spending. Hmm. Eisenhower put a stop to that at great cost, at political cost. The Congress was always mad at him. Military was always mad at him. But because because he was a military man, he knew them, he understood them. And because he had the strength to stand up to them, he ended up saving us from wildly overspending on useless weapons.
0: Evan, I have a few short questions that will hopefully sure. give us a little deeper look into the personal side of number 34. Pastor President, yeah. who do you think his favorite president would be? Lincoln,
1: for sure he he made he had a bust of Lincoln in his retirement office. Lincoln, the master of men uh could read people who had great human intelligence uh and also believed in overwhelming force
0: what What would you say would be his luckiest moment as president since we're talking about the presidency?
1: oh his well, his unluckiest moment was when the u two got mm-hmm. shot down yeah, yeah. Uh, his his luckiest <laughs> moment uh that's hard to say. I think we were lucky that we didn't get blown up. Uh, you know, a lot there could have. A lot of mistakes could have happened in the early years of the, before permissive action links and controls on nuclear weapons. We're lucky. I, I remember reading that uh, on Interlak at the air base in Turkey, uh, it's just American pilots would be sitting there in planes with nuclear weapons attached to them, and the only guard was some Turkish guard with an unloaded <laughs> auto, uh, unloaded pistol. You know, I mean, it's just. We're lucky we didn't make a mistake. We're lucky we didn't make a mistake.
0: Now, you mentioned his love of scotch a little bit. Did he have a favorite dessert or something special that he indulged in on special occasions other than scotch? Uh,
1: (laughs) Bourbon? (laughs) Uh, uh, He he liked to grill steaks. He he was a good cook. He liked to grill steaks.
0: Oh, that's right. There's a very famous picture of him grilling on the roof of the White House.
1: He, He was a perfectionist about everything, including that. Bourbon and
2: steaks, I'm liking um, Ike even more. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes sense to me. <laughs> me <too. Yeah. laughs>
0: now he was one of several men who have held the titles president and general. Which title meant the most to him?
1: General. He he, he reverted to it after he was president. He mm. he he liked to have his ceremony at the end of the day of taking down the five star uh, flag of a general. He was a creature of the military. His whole existence was defined by the military, and that's what what his first and true love was.
0: That's a common theme through I yeah, mean, the presidents that, that, yeah. that have been generals. That's very common. Like Andrew Jackson on his grave is General Jackson. General, Grant, Grant. Grant, the same Grant, way. Mm-hmm. Same thing.
1: He spent his entire life aspiring to be a general and then to be a five-star general. it's you know, mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah.
0: And finally, Evan, what's your favorite quote of his from his presidency years? Do you have a favorite quote?
1: Yeah, I, I think plan, the most meaningful quote is, uh, well, I have three things. Plans are are. are or nothing but planning is everything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he got, he had a quote from, uh, uh, the poet Frost, uh, the strong say nothing until they see mm-hmm. that was him. The strong mm-hmm. say nothing until they see, but his most memorable quote may be when he started D-Day with, okay,
2: let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Really enjoyed this conversation with you. Evan. what, what is next for you?
1: I am, uh, Working on a book about the last two weeks of World War II, you know, dropping the bomb for sure. Very interested in the Japanese surrender. You know, a lot of people wonder, did we really have to do that? Did we really have to drop two atom bombs on them? Let me answer the question by saying, after the day after we had dropped our second atom bomb on Japan and the Russians had declared war and were invading Manchuria, the vote at the top of the Japanese government was a three to three tie on whether to surrender Mm. the Japanese just were on this death wish and I'm fascinated by that and how that worked and how the emperor finally got them to surrender and on the American side, I'm equally interested on the decision to use this weapon, which really almost was not a decision. It was kind of an inexorable progress, but there was a lot of hidden concern or repressed concern about killing civilians, Mm. fireballing, uh, it didn't get expressed, but it's there, and I and I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm trying to tease it out. Uh, so that's uh, so really, it's a narrative of the last two weeks of, of World War II. But it will focus heavily on those two questions: American use of killing civilians and how they how the leaders felt about it, and Japanese reluctance mm-hmm. to surrender.
2: Can't wait to read that. Evan, all of your work is so terrific. Where can people go to learn more about all of your wonderful books? Amazon. Amazon, uh, yeah. We're all, all going to work
0: for Amazon. <laughs> That's right, right. If Amazon's <laughs> listening, we always could use a sponsor uh, as well. That's terrific, <laughs> but, yeah. Well, <laughs> wonderful. Running the world. <laughs> right. Well, Evan, we hope you have enjoyed your time here on American POTUS. We I appreciate am. you joining right. us. Thank you
1: for the excellent,
0: excellent questions. I really enjoyed talking to
2: you guys. Great to talk with you, Evan. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care.
0: The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic designed by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last word from POTUS 34. Quote, I have said time and again there is no place on this earth I would not travel, There is no chore I would not undertake if I had any faintest hope that by so doing, I would promote the general cause of world peace.